to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. the show pod damn america i'm jake that's anders anders jay lee here if you're wondering why i'm talking like this uh <coughs> excuse me god damn i'm sorry i'm trying not to cough into the mic like that but i figured something out just today which is that i often wake up and record this show and my voice is fucked up as you know it just tends to be because of all of the various things that make it that way. But uh, how do I explain this? So I sometimes feel like I'm having a bit of an allergic attack. And I have like... Um, you when know, you like wake up in the, in the first thing in the morning. Yeah. And I have like kind of a scratchy throat. And it makes me cough. And yesterday I was laying on my back and my cat Murray got up on my chest like he likes to do you know it's kind of cute i pet him he rubs his face into mine and then he started doing this thing because i was lying perfectly still he started jamming his face into my mouth <laughs> like pressing it like it was cute like he was like trying to cuddle me or whatever he was pressing his face real hard in my mouth but then it hit me all at once he does this shit while i'm sleeping and i think i just breathe in murray air and I think he Ugh. fucks me up while I'm sleeping and make because I'm not like a little allergic to him. It wouldn't be a problem if he didn't jam his face into my mouth. <laughs> that doesn't sound healthy. But on the other hand, if he were not doing that, then you would just be breathing in the air of Los Angeles. So maybe it is ultimately a good thing that Murray is doing this to your face and mouth. Oh, yeah. He's like a filter. He's yeah. trying to protect me. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's what they tell me about the smog out there. Something fierce. <coughs> it is bad. Like a friend of mine, when Jamie was out here, she went to a doctor because she was having some, she thought she was sick. And the doctor told her like, oh yeah, that's just a thing that happens when people come to LA because oh, no. <laughs> of the air. <laughs> like people just straight up get sick from it. You have to adapt the way you have to adapt to like the altitude in Denver or whatever. Yeah, you have I to mean, learn to breathe the the poison here, like a like you're in Dune or something. I you know I've had friends who've lived in you know, places like you used to live, like a loft situation, <clears throat> like artist uh, housing. Which today it's funny how artist housing used to be like publicly funding, and now it's just like the most rundown place you can find that the landlord isn't redeveloping yet. Um, it's like a former glue factory. Uh, but I had a friend who lived in a place like that. And every time he went home to visit his parents, he would get sick for like a week because it was like his body was getting used to the outer world again. Uh, very traumatic bodily. Yeah. Cause once you're acclimated to it, normal air is poison. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, hello, everyone. I think it's cool. It makes me sound like the Crypt Keeper when I'm introing the show. 
I guess I, I mean, I, it's it's uh, there was that that one day when Biden had his voice was all deep because he had a cold, and on Twitter anyway, everyone was like, you know, that's pretty cool. If he had this voice all the time, then maybe <laughs> I would like him better, um, and maybe that would be distracting from the from the genocide that's going on if he if he got another cold, and maybe that's a, a good idea cool. for him to do. He gives a State of the Union, and he's like. Good evening, citizens. Yeah. Fear me. <laughs> right. I, I'd vote for him then. I'd be committed, in fact, <laughs> to voting for him. That's what I'd be. Yeah. Well, apparently the White House has been freaking out over the, the uncommitted vote, uh, which we've been covering on the show. Michigan, other states coming up this, this next week, actually. And um, I was watching this the the returns come in on Tuesday night, so I was excited about this. And of course, you know, I didn't uh, remember this in until um, until I mentioned it. But 2012, 10,000 Democrats uh, or people in Michigan voted in the Democratic primary, uncommitted in uh, in the 2012 primary with Obama. So that was seen as like, oh, people are going to do that anyway. It doesn't mean much. But then, like, way more than that ended up voting uh, uncommitted or it was like 10%. I forget the exact, the exact figure. Um, so they were trying to downplay it. Uh, but the threshold is, is much larger, a hundred thousand people altogether in Michigan voted uncommitted, which is, uh, which is a big deal. Um, and you know, it is, it does happen in most primaries where people will do that, but this was, this was a concerted effort and a, a sort of a last minute one. And if you look at places like Dearborn, Uncommitted actually won a majority. Um, yeah, it beat Biden. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in like certain places. Yeah, it uh, uncommitted. Just crunch some numbers here. You said usually it gets like ten thousand. Usually ten percent. I meant to say, yeah. Oh, ten percent. Yeah. Wait. Which, usually it gets ten percent. It did. It did the last time there was an incumbent Democrat in Michigan in twenty twelve. Interesting, because that kind of makes this not the, as big of a deal <laughs> than it's being made out to yeah. be. Then, because it it made thirteen percent. This time, right? But the, yeah, but the the number of people voting this time has is larger, and so the the raw the raw count a hundred k is way larger than uh, whatever it was in uh, twenty twelve. This is a well, but okay. But if it's te- if ten percent of whoever votes generally goes uncommitted, then these people need to fucking calm down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That- yeah. Well, all right. Now I'm, I got to be a fucking wonky brain person and look up the previous uh, states because I, I was under the impression this is like a huge deal because the numbers are Biden got 623,000 votes, uncommitted got 101,000, and in the Republican primary, Trump got 758 thousand nearly 759,000 which means that there is a gap of about 100,000 which means that like the uncommitted block of 100,000 voters potentially actually is the the factor that would push Biden over the edge even actually honestly even Biden's votes and the uncommitted block together still it's less than what Trump got right. so and I know that's not like a perfect argument though because this is a primary and like not everybody votes in a primary and yeah not everyone is guaranteed to vote the exact same way or whatever but um 
in theory, that should give the uncommitted block leverage to say, you have to do what we want or else uh, you, like, you're going to lose to Trump because of this block. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, also, congratulations to uncommitted for gaining two delegates. That's very funny. <laughs> That's my main question is how do, how are those delegates allocated? Because uh, uncommitted can be kind of anything. Um, but we'll, I'll look into that, I guess. But the, the important thing, I mean, is that there is a, a big difference between 2024 and 2012, especially in Michigan, when at the time the Obama campaign was telling people not to vote in the primary because they had a, at the time they had a caucus and they were like, let's do that instead. So the turnout was extremely low. So there's just like way more people voting this time. So the fact that it is even higher uh, than it was in 2012 is, is kind of a, is, is a big deal. And, uh, and again, there are cities where uncommitted won a majority that didn't happen in 2012 and just the political terrain is much different, right? There was no real coherent electoral left in, in 2012. Um, I say that as someone who at the time really wanted there to be. Um, but the thing I wanted to to mention a little bit is I was watching this on CNN unfold and they have their big election map of Michigan. And right, I'm used to looking at, at Michigan on the map. I know there's the Upper Peninsula, which is like part of Wisconsin. And I was starting to kind of conceptualize what it would be like for Wisconsin to have the Upper Peninsula, which it probably should um, but, you know, we think of Wisconsin, it looks kind of like a brain. And then if they had the UP, it would just be like a, an antler or some kind of like growth, like from the movie Alien or something. It would look freaky. It's so maybe it's that's... Tumor. Yeah. Maybe that's for aesthetic reasons that they gave the UP to, to Michigan. I know it was part of the Toledo War in the 19th century. Um, of course, we all know that. Well, they they had like a technical war. I don't. Th- I think there's like maybe one bullet fired or something like that. But Ohio and Michigan. That's why there's still a big rivalry today because they had a, a border dispute over Toledo, and <laughs> and the the federal government was like, okay, Michigan, uh, Ohio gets Toledo, but you can have this part of Wisconsin. And Wisconsin was like, what? And then they just gave it to them anyway because nobody, you know, this, it's a very sparsely populated region. The UP. I was talking to somebody I know from there and. She was saying like politicians don't campaign there. There's like some there's like Marquette and that's kind of it. And like it's they they have like their own Internet provider and it's like a really it's a really weird place. So I was looking at Michigan on this map and then I see this little speck way up above the Upper Peninsula. And I'm like, what the fuck is what the heck is that? Is that like, is the map glitching out? Is there just like a blue dot there for some reason? Did somebody spill Kool-Aid or something? Uh, but uh-huh. but there is an island in, in, that, uh, in that lake that is part of Michigan, even though it's closer to both Minnesota and Ontario. It's called Isle Royale. And I had no idea this place existed. Um, and it, in, in my opinion, should be in Minnesota. Because it is closer to Minnesota, uh, I mean it's it's really far from Michigan, like the hand part of Michigan. Uh, it's not in the fat Upper Peninsula area. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's go it on. is it's not super far from the Upper Peninsula, but it's it's objectively much much closer to both Ontario and that little uh, the little top of Minnesota that juts out. Um, but this place 
was gifted by the Brits to the U.S. Uh, I think after or no, it was before the War of eighteen twelve, and apparently, um, some it might be haunted. I don't know what's going on there. It's a, it's a weird place. Uh, there was there's a story of this woman, this Ojibwe woman named Angelique Mott, who she and her husband were like stranded there, and he tried to eat her. Uh, and then she had to like kill him. It's very disturbing stuff. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> in the Isle of what? <laughs> What's it called? Isle, Isle Royale. Isle Royale. Oh, that's yeah. so scary. <laughs> Welcome to the story of the Isle of Royale. Yeah. I don't mean to bring cannibalism. He, he, he died of, uh, he starved to death. She didn't, she didn't kill him. I should uh, correct that. But, um, but she made it back to Ontario and then like lived for another few years. Uh, which must have been crazy. But the the thing that really stuck out to me <laughs> is there's nobody who lives on the island now. You you can only get there by plane or by boat. And today no one no one lives there because in the nineteen forties it was depopulated by the Forest Service. They came in, the Park Service came in and kicked out a community of Scandinavian fishermen who just lived there and they like burned their huts and shit it was it's actually a very uh disturbing story um but there's still like an association i read all about this on i'll cop to it on wikipedia uh but there's a there's an association of isle royale families and friends and they try to preserve the history of the isle royale even though they're not allowed to live there um their flag just has the lady eating the guy on it. <laughs> like, our history is our who we are. He he tried to eat her and she oh, sorry. she resisted. So it's okay. nevertheless she persisted flag, but it, instead of <laughs> like giving a filibuster, it's escaping a man's jowl. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, I heard it backwards. Sorry, but that's that's way that's like way worse. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad she survived. <laughs> But these Scandinavian people, maybe I'm related to them. I don't know. Uh, but they they lived on this island uh, since the the late 19th century, and uh, had they have they have bad blood between them and the National Park Service. Um, so for a while, their land would get purchased or taken. They were considered squatters, uh, and then after World War II, America, I don't know, was becoming trying to. May streamline things and they're like let's clear this place out national parks doing more of that at the time and so the greenhorns as they call the uh the government men come in and they just like clear everybody out and they burn people's houses and stuff like that and kick them out so um i'm resisting the temptation to compare this to the palestinians because that's not i don't want to draw that but it just is an interesting uh example of the long 20th century and and how you know governments evict people when they decide it's uh not convenient uh for them to be there and you know maybe in the grand scheme of things you could argue that resource wise it didn't make sense to have these people there but like i don't know they were living their sustainable lives you know they weren't fucking up the ecosystem like let them live there i don't know what the problem is just because you you want to ha- call it a national park and no one can live in a national park because that's cause that's the rule, um, yeah. My people have been wronged in two ways. Yeah, in two ways because we should. This should be Minnesota again. <laughs> wow, that sounds like um, 
like a whole uh i'm very happy for your people anders however that plays out (laughs) it's um i feel like this is a story from the land of anders people and i'm hearing it and if i was like if i was there i would sort of smile and slowly back out the door and go i hope you guys figure this out amongst yourselves it's uh (laughs) disturbing to me um, that kind of reminds me of something I read this week that is adjacent and perhaps gauche to compare to all of this. But um, the um, so I'm reading that Cliff Nesteroff book, Outrageous, about the culture wars and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting. He's, there's a chapter about All in the Family and how uh, the actor who plays Archie Bunker, you know, he's actually like he's actually um, – like a good liberal kind right. of 70s leftist type guy, yeah. you know, but he's he's satirizing a, a right wing racist, right? In mm. that show. Yep. And they created this FCC regulation called the, the Family Viewing Hour, where between the hours of seven and nine or whatever, uh, primetime TV basically, it's, uh, a bunch of, you know, moral outrage people lobbied to make it to where you can only play family friendly stuff or whatever and that was in the hour that all the family aired um my damn cat's jumping up my face again and he's trying to put his chemicals into the microphone to poison all of you don't do it uh so it was interesting because like you know, the the show itself is sort of attacked by this regulation and they're like, well, we do we have to change the show so that, you know, we can have this time slot or whatever. But there was another show that came right after it called Bridget Loves Bernie <laughs> that also was under the same um, the same threat <clears throat> of regulation by the family viewing hour. Bridget Loves Bernie starred uh meredith baxter i think and uh some other guy i can't think of his name but uh basically the premise of the show is that she's a catholic and he's a jew and mm, they're an odd couple or whatever but they're like a couple it's like a romance right and this drew the ire <laughs> of the jewish defense league what which yeah they were really bad about like um mixed marriage being portrayed because uh you know it just went against their their code of like you know morals like they said that it was seen as um promiscuous and uh immoral and in particular i think with the you know the 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 kind of like jewish uh value of preservation of like the people you know what i mean because small population or whatever but uh they fucking sent a bomb threat (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah. um i'll read from a little bit from the book here after the final episode aired the lapd raided the jewish defense league's headquarters they found 12 rifles and a machine gun the fbi eventually classified the jdl as a terrorist organization um Meanwhile, life imitated art as the stars of the program, Meredith Baxter and David Burney, married in real life. Um, so, yeah, they, they call it a bomb threat. And they uh, I think they actually bombed 
an unrelated Arab person's house. <laughs> they sent in a... Let's see. Yeah, okay. So it says, we had bomb threats on the show, recalled Meredith Baxter, who played Bridget. Some guys from the Jewish Defense League came to my house to say they wanted to talk to me about changing the show. Robert S. Manning, Fish's collaborator, had just been arrested for detonating a pipe bomb in East Hollywood. The Los Angeles Times received an anonymous phone call that said, take this down carefully. I just bombed an Arab's house in Hollywood. No Arab is going to be safe in this country. I don't even think the people on this show are Arabs. (laughs) It's just unrelated. Yeah, it's crazy, man. That's so because, like, first of all, <clears throat> Catholic. Like, I understand WASP or Muslim, honestly, but like Catholics and Jews are in the minds of America's elite. Up until this time, they were just the same thing in a lot of ways. Like, uh, I mean, Catholics a little earlier, but uh, like mid twentieth century, they were both considered kind of riffraff, and like the Kennedy presidency presidency is kind of like when they rose to prominence, uh, both Catholics and Jews, more so Catholics, but still like the, of all the ethnic groups to be like really mad about intermingling with why, why would Catholic, I mean, I guess it's cause that's what the show was, but would they be more upset if it was a, a wasp or something? I don't know. But like, there's also at that time, way bigger fish to fry. I would think like there are, there are country clubs that still aren't letting Jews in, in, you know, this part of the, <laughs> history right why not why not target them yeah i don't know well you know you can walk and chew gum you can do two things at the same time <laughs> uh you we always i always end up saying that when people acute, make things mutually exclusive for us the um uh-huh. the good people in this uh, war i think but uh it's true of the enemy too that goes to show you people doing fucked up shit can do more than one thing at the same time and apparently this was just on their list of things to do that day it was on their docket you know <laughs> yeah um it's, funny, it's crazy oh, good well the the uh, southern poverty law center considers them a, a hate group um which is interesting because the, the just the term jewish defense league you can definitely get a meeting if they were still i don't know if they're still around or not but you could definitely get a meeting with the head of that and joe biden he was like we'll kiss your feet if you're the head of the jewish defense league he doesn't know what it is you know is on like <laughs> there's so many there's this uh there's an organization it sounds like something that would be just kind of plain and normal <laughs> yeah yeah which is it's funny because that kind of goes both ways there's a there's an organization uh i believe is still active mostly here in new york called the jewish vote and it's like anti-zionist jews uh who endorse candidates who are against uh israel and they they sometimes politicians will meet with them and just assume because they're called the jewish vote that they are super pro-israel um it's kind of yeah like a stereotyping that's funny uh (laughs) that's uh uh i don't even know how to explain what i was about to say um this book though man it's interesting It, it really kind of shows you how chaotic and widespread the concept of outrage and culture war is and how uh, kind of weird it is that what's happened recently is as part of the culture war, everyone in every faction has decided to try to narrow down hysteria just to their opponent and just in a specific way. So 
the chuds, their thing is that uh, only blue hair Brooklyn hipster guy is is offended by anything, uh, and and then like our you know the other side of that is if you're a blue hair Brooklyn hipster guy, you're like only the religious people are scared of things, you know, and yeah. and uh, fearful and paranoid or whatever. But it's really it's kind of all over the place. This is it's half of it is justifiable, like various ethnic groups and racial groups writing letters and saying like, don't like do that. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't do that character or whatever. It's fucking offensive. And like, there's all these crazy stories of like Irish organizations just like showing up and brawling at like vaudeville theaters and stuff. Cause they were doing like Irish face or whatever. Um, Bounce, right. Didn't we talk right, about the clowns originally Irish face? Yeah, because they're that's why they're all they have red hair and they're hobos and drunk and shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then also, like half of it is uh, they're like the religious right has historically just been freaking out about like sexuality forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's this phrase that keeps popping up. I apparently this used to be a very popular phrase. People would write letters and they would say, I don't like what Mary Tyler Moore is doing. She's dancing the hoochie coochie up there. It's <laughs> hoochie coochie. It just appears over and over again. I don't know what it means. I don't think I might know what it means. But at least but part like, of it. What is, I don't think that it, grammatically it doesn't even look like it means fucking. It, it's something else. It's She's dancing the hoochie coochie. That's not how you say fucking. It's like a made up mythical dance that scares old conservative white people i want to learn how to do it honestly yeah that's. Good. i guess that's kind of what what uh dirty dancing or footloose or whatever is about let's see if we can get hoochie coochie trending on tiktok oh man the old people would lose their fucking minds <laughs> <laughs> no what happened we used to have morals <laughs> yeah <sighs> all right well um, good job on committed. Uh, I'm interested to see if that picks up more steam in future races. Sounds like it's gonna sounds like they're, uh, they're not happy with it. And that was the point, right? Yeah. Um, today, do you want to, you want to get into it? Hard pivot, <laughs> hard, hard pivot from the hoochie coochie. Yeah. <clears throat> um, today we're going to talk to a uh, an independent journalist who is uh, part of the story of leaking the or leaking the uh, publicizing. We'll get into that. We'll ask her about it. But the footage of uh, fallen comrade Aaron Bushnell, who you're probably familiar with, um, a 25 year old soldier who self immolated. Last week in protest of the genocide at Gaza, uh, we're going to talk to this journalist, Talia, who um, I think she was given the footage and she's the reason that it first appeared on Twitter. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to ask her about that and also discuss the the act itself because there's been a week of discourse around it and uh, I think it raises some interesting questions We'll get into it, uh, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, solidarity with Aaron Bushnell and his memory. I 
personally think it was a pretty heroic act, but we will discuss. All right, let's talk to Talia Jane. Okay, we are now talking to uh, Talia Jane, an independent journalist who covers social movements and things like that. Talia, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for being here. Um, If you're on Twitter, you might know Talia uh, for her work as an independent journalist, but also for kind of breaking this story. So just to start, can you tell me how that happened? I was on Twitter and saw a post from seemed like a reporter that had responded to the scene saying that uh, someone had tried to set themselves on fire outside the Israeli embassy. And I retweeted that. And then, you know, I explained self immolation, uh, self immolation is a, is a type of protest Um, And then I got a message from an editor with the Atlantic Community Press Collective, which is uh, an alternative news outlet covering things related to Atlanta and Stop Cop City. Um, And he said, we have the footage. We haven't published it yet. And he sent me a link to a Twitch channel. And I clicked on it and I watched it. And it became immediately obvious that what was being reported was incorrect and you know there was a a researcher that told me that um people got the email to the twitch channel early on and that earlier that day and that they were trying to track him down um to intervene because he had emailed saying that he was going to engage in extreme act of protest and they didn't know what that meant, but they knew that they had an ethical obligation to not, you know, just idly let harm happen, however uh-huh. it manifested. Um, and they sent me a LinkedIn page for him. Um, and I, I posted a still from the video that made clear that it wasn't that someone tried to self-immolate. It was that they had successfully done so. And I included the context of the why, specific words that he said, the the statement that he made without including his name because it wasn't known if, you know, family or next of kin had been notified or anything like that. Um, And then I just... I mean, I don't know. It, 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 the story is the story, right? There's no story about like how it came to be. It was like I took the information sure. and then I made, put the information out in the world the way that I know how, which is right. through just posting it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Totally. Uh, I guess I just I wanted to ask that to like clarify because I saw yeah. people accusing you of. Uh, uh, weird made-up scenarios where you people were didn't... saying that I was like there, yeah, had, like I knew about it and I let him do it or I I manipulated him into doing it and it's like the very start of the video once I did post it it starts with like a giant 
play button on the screen from my screen recording of his Twitch broadcast. Right. Like, I, and also he's like carrying the thing and then he puts it on the ground. Was he carrying me? Right. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. It kind of reminds me of like, I was reading about um, the monk who self-immolated in uh, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about that story later. But one of the things that happened is, you know, that he's obviously photographed by a journalist down there because I think what happened in that instance is that they did kind of broadcast to the press that there was going to be a form of protest and it's in a similar way actually, but, um, you know, but, but on the ground. And so a photographer caught it and it became this iconic photograph that like, you know, immediately was on like postcards and stuff. Uh, and then eventually the rage against the machine album cover. But, um, the, so he was protesting the sort of like Catholic supremacist nature of the South Vietnam government at the time because uh that government at the time gave like certain rights to catholics that it did not afford buddhists so it was trying to impose catholicism in a lot of ways like um catholics were exempt from corvée labor and stuff like that and uh anyway long story short the photographer that took that photo, eventually the the president of South Vietnam who was being protested, he accused that photographer of orchestrating the event to, uh, to benefit from it or to like, you know, for it's kind of a parallel with what people were tweeting at you is like, or why didn't you do anything and that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, this happens every time there's something really intense that happens. I've been accused of organizing the January 6th Capitol riot. Well, because that's why we brought you on the show, actually. Is, uh, how did you organize the January 6th riot? Uh, <laughs> it was really easy. I just, you know, <laughs> I I just stood there filming people. And I guess for whatever reason, I just imbued the sense of rioting to them. <laughs> you know, I made eye contact with a bunch of Proud Boys. Yeah. And they were like, for some reason, I want to bash cops. I don't know why. That's so cool. I'm so That's all I had to do. It's just because I'm so powerful. I'm supernatural. I don't know if you know this. I also control the weather is another thing I've been accused of. What? It's, yeah. Like, it's is it the harp about, conspiracy theory or? It's, it's, it's a lot of, I, because I cover a lot of extremists and far right things um, critically in a way that has kind of made it harder for them to disseminate false information. They'll, they'll try and claim you know, there's just a random group of, of community members seeing this thing and flipping out. And it's like, these are all friends. Here are their names. There's other <laughs> dumb stuff that they've done. And well, so it becomes you, this, you know, yeah. shooting the messenger constantly. And I've heard from other press too, like other photographers, if they go and cover something because they got a tip to show up somewhere to cover a thing, they get accused of organizing it. It's very mm. goofy. And I think it's just narratives that people make up to kind of cope with things that they don't understand because we've defunded public education so severely in this country. We, uh, we should if, probably if you back control up. the weather, can you make it stop raining in both of the cities that we're in? <laughs> you know, I could, yeah. I really could, but 
I don't know. I kind of like it. <laughs> want us to suffer. It's just it does the chaos make... of it, you know? Anders, what were you saying? Uh, well, I was going to say it also makes tea a lot more enjoyable when you're inside and it's raining. So maybe you're a tea enthusiast. But You're welcome. Um, do you have a big fuzzy <laughs> sweater? Like I sure do. There you go. Um, you're welcome. I do. <laughs> well, we should probably back up a, a second and, and just kind of explain your uh, – background in in journalism. Um, How did you get into covering these events? I started covering protests in 2020 during the BLM uprising um, following the death of George Floyd. I wanted to cover protests because I saw that there was a lack of coverage about what was actually happening within the protests, the space the things that people were saying, the chants, you know, all these different things. I wouldn't see that from the media coverage. It was just like, you know, a hundred people marched or, you know, uh, cops would make up claims about what happened that led to cop arre- uh, cops making arrests on people. And so it just felt like if I can contribute to the public knowledge, I might as well do that here. And I'd previously worked in a sort of freelance capacity in media, um, doing personal experience essays, doing SEO, which sucked. <laughs> but I had That's like search search engine optimization. Search engine okay. optimization, yeah. So I was just do I would do like fifteen articles that are kind of different variations of like the weather is bad. Here's what you need to know. Um, Super Bowl coming up, who's playing, uh, things like that, just to get Google traffic to the outlet. Um, and I did like a little trivia writing and for, it was like an app that Sam B created, uh, that was kind of like HQ, um, and, you know, just all the general media stuff. So I had a little bit of an aptitude. I knew, I knew reporters and journalists. I was in that space and that's like on the perimeters of that realm. And I decided to get into it. I took notes about my own coverage, about other people in other cities and how they were reporting on things and kind of developed this skill, which I'm still currently working on improving um, to report on protests and social movements. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's that, that is kind of a good place to start here because I think part of this like is that uh, things are changing because of the democratization of information. And uh, you know, there used to be kind of like, a very heavy uh, mainstream that was regulated in ways that changed when the internet and the material conditions of society sort of simultaneously changed over the last couple of decades. And that's why there's such an awareness of Palestine in a way that there hasn't been previously, I mm-hmm. think. And uh, I think it's also why Aaron Bushnell's message was so effective it, because um I mean, there have been other, a lot of other just protests in general, but other specifically uh, self-immolations 
and uh, not to to denigrate anyone who's done something that extreme because I mean, the fucking I none of us have, you know. Um, but I think specifically the way he planned it with uh, streaming it is um, it's kind of, kind of mind boggling to think about because it it's such a modern thing. But uh, but it seems to be the reason that it took off and became such a such a like a viral moment that that permeated like the you know global culture and things because i mean like hamas Mm -hmm. made a statement about like yeah that was a that was a bizarre moment to report on what hamas has said like for that to be relevant to my reporting yeah i was like i'm in the i'm quoting Hamas and the PFLP with regards to the thing that's the story that I broke. I'm, I'm, you know, and I was also, you know, reporting on vigils that were coming up and, um, art that people are creating. So it's like, I've, I've been covering like the full scope of, of response to Aaron Bushnell's, um, protest. But that was one of those moments where I was like, Oh, this is big. And then I started getting DMs from people um, who attended a, a million march, millions march in the capital of Yemen, who raised portraits of Aaron Bushnell. And, you know, he was the first U.S. soldier for for that to happen to. It was the first, like, person to have a, a U.S. soldier to have their portrait raised in Yemen and they they gave him an honorific name, um, and you know the full. I think like the full scope of it is to your point about social media democratizing things. Um, there was an, a self immolation attempt in December in Atlanta, Georgia, that we know nothing about. It was initially there's someone who is femme and they they may have had a palestinian flag and that's that's all we know about you know outside of a an israeli embassy that's all we knew we didn't have any other information and then we see what bushnell did in the lead up to this to make it unavoidable and you see the media's response throughout even having all the information there was still this hesitancy to report what happened in full. You know, I sent the Twitch channel to the New York times because a New York times reporter reached out asking, I was on the phone with her explaining, you know, stop at one twenty nine because that's when it happens. Like if you don't need to watch the rest, like that's where you would want to stop. And, you know, after the Twitch channel was taken down, I was sending, we transfer links to CNN, CBS, Al Jazeera, like all these different outlets who asked so they could verify the footage. I was doing all of that thinking like they have the information, they can verify it themselves. You know, New York Times can plainly see that this Twitch channel exists. They've watched the video before it was taken down. They have all this information and yet they still kind of a lot decided to wait until they got confirmation from the U.S. Air Force, uh, 
that he was an active duty member until they got uh, confirmation from the DC police that he had died. And that information came out like 12 hours after I broke the news that he had died. And it's, it's just like this, this deference to um, institutions of authority when the authority of information in this situation was Aaron himself. Yeah. I mean, comparing how the story like broke here with previous protests and with the other self-immolation, which you know happened like a year ago or something like that. Um, I, what's to me, what I get from that, the story seems to be that, um, you know, the, the, extreme gravity of the event, the way he chose to go about protesting in tandem with the, uh, you know, the tools that we have now in terms of being independent journalists and, and spreading information online and using social media seem to have created like a situation where then the media that probably would have blacked this sort of thing out had to work, you know, it put them in the defensive position, I guess. Like they had to deal with the situation. And that's why I think what he did is so effective because this is uh, in a lot of ways, a war of PR, you know, is what's going on. Uh, Palestine is, is uh, I've said this a million times because it's in my head. It's a a Bailey wick of mine, but um, you know, I'm reading this book about Palestine on the show and the author of it talks a lot about how Israel won that war early, and that that's why uh, you know the the thing to do here is to spread consciousness around Palestine because it's been blocked out in so many ways, and in these ways, like that. I think that 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 story um, is it illustrates how uh, you it, we're on, we're, we're lose we're losing the, you know, the, the war of information here of trying to spread this information, but that's how you get things out there. I mean, that's not how <laughs> I don't want to be misquoted it's, it's, as saying it's not setting. You don't set yourself on fire to get information out there, but the accessibility of what is happening without repackaging and downplaying or, shifting the focus in the way that the media institutions are prone to do with this outdated concept of quote unquote neutrality that ultimately ends up being its own form of, you know, bias getting in the way. Right. Yeah. Objectivity, right. That's like the term that journalists try to, uh, it's, it's like a, um, a fake idea in my opinion. And that's an interesting question in, journalism that there's like a fair way to go about all this stuff because if you do things just by the book if they sort of tend to favor the status quo of the entire mm-hmm. uh institution and industry and stuff like that um well okay let's let's uh let's get you out of the hot seat for a second here i didn't mean to come in and grill you about your career as a <laughs> as a journalist uh, i think we all appreciate what you did here and and how you helped get this information out there but let's talk about the event itself a little bit mm-hmm. uh, um so it seems like this was you know fairly deliberate like he he gave his cat to his next door neighbor he wrote a lot of things about it he wrote that 
uh, Facebook post the day of that's sort of gone viral about how um, I'll look it up here in a second. Uh, but this is, you know, this is all planned and the, the nature of the streaming event and everything was planned. If anyone happens to be listening to this and, and doesn't really know all the details of it, um, it's, 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 I watched it. It's really intense. And the bleakest part of it is that a secret service agent runs up to him with his fucking gun drawn <laughs> and really paints a picture of the society we live in, in a really bleak way. Um, yeah, you, you even hear someone else yelling. I don't, you don't need a gun. We don't need a gun. We need a fire extinguisher. Get a fire extinguisher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then after the guy says that he just kind of keeps holding his gun up and kind of just stay, like he looks over and it's just sort of like, so what am I supposed to do? Like, go, <laughs> like that's all he knows. Yeah. You know, and it's that thing about like when what is what's the quote? Um when oh, all no. you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's um it's like a Vietnam quote. I mean just very parallel very uh, appropriate. Um I think face- for me the the worst part of the video is the sound of the metal thermos clanking and then rolling down the driveway as you hear someone say, can I, can I help you, sir? And then they watch him trying to click the lighter on and they don't think to respond to that. And then when he manages to ignite their response is Jesus Christ and then they start yelling at him to get on the ground instead of tackling him, you know, to roll him around to make it stop themselves. They didn't want to cause any injury to themselves to save this guy's life. And I think that is so endemic to a lot of issues that we're dealing with today. Yeah, like a lot of the explanations of that, of the cops around him uh, or the Secret Service agents or whatever uh, by the media, which is just sort of incentivized to apologize for people like that, has been like, well, um, the you know, the, they said the guy with the gun was pointing his gun to try to protect the two other officers from, you know, what he perceived as maybe being like a threat, like that he was going to, you know, attack them or something. But like, I think that their split second decisions they made, which are because they're split second decisions, they are revealing in that way. Like it shows you what's actually kind of instilled in these people's minds. If you know the way they react without having being really conscious in an emergency. I mean like photographers, like the split second decision that photographers have when something bad happens is to get their camera and take a bunch of photos. The split second instinct that medics have when something goes wrong is to run into whatever the danger is to help people. The split second that that guy had was to hold up his gun and keep holding it while screaming at the guy and not knowing what else to do. Yeah. He's um, just, that's bad training. Yeah. Like being a it, human person. Right. It's like, it's like, cause that's, 
that person's whole job. And that's also the thing that like is just our answer to every fucking problem is we got to hire more people to do this. Right. <laughs> um, his Facebook post said uh, many. This is like the day that this happened. The last thing he posted was many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is you're doing it right now. Um, very clear, very, um, very heavy. Uh, and I, I, I kind of been sort of interested in where this guy came from and what, you know, he was, what he was really trying to say. So I've been reading a bit about him this week. Uh, and I, I think that it seems that he was an anarchist specifically, yeah, he was described by his, his friends and by himself. He, his friends described him as a capital A anarchist. Um, he identified himself as an anarchist and explained that his political um, ideology was rooted in a desire to secure liberation for all. Um, he made a lot of posts on Reddit that explored anarchist theory and challenged a lot of the you know contradictory or or anti-human uh ideologies that try to creep into anarchist spaces um and he kept his very rooted in um social anarchism which you know was focused on mutual aid and anti-capitalism anti-imperialism things Mm -hmm. things like that like he was very much an anarchist even though he'd only really come into it recently. He'd only kind of just got started mm-hmm. learning about who he was. Um, he well, he was, was raised, a young guy. Yeah, he was, he was, he was raised in like a, a Christian community has been described as a, an abusive cult that engaged in not mind control, but, um, like manipulation, psychological manipulation. Um, and that was the space that he had been raised in. And then he did a 180 and kind of through that became very, um, very sensitive to systems of hierarchy and oppression. Mm. And, you know, so if we want to blame anyone for, anarchism we can we can blame the conservative christian right <laughs> yeah i mean uh, I, I i like anarchists so <laughs> i uh, i don't want to blame anyone i i i i, I kind of relate to i think this guy's perspective in a certain ways it, it's gonna be rather gauche here but he's i think about comedians a lot because i'm a comedian and i think a lot about where the tendency of like iconoclastry comes from and i i know a few comics who would describe themselves the way he described himself which is having escaped from a cult and the cult referring to small christian sects and stuff like that and that being like the uh impetus for you know for seeing the oppressive nature of hierarchical systems everywhere where people don't. And, um, 
I, 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 I want, I want to read some of the stuff that people said about him. Uh, I'm just because he, he gave his freaking life, you know, for this. So I think that's yeah. something we can do, uh, in this guy's memory to honor him. So I, I took some notes here. Yeah. That Christian sect was called community for Jesus. Uh, it's in San Antonio or no, wait, don't, I might be wrong about that, uh, but he, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, right. Sorry. He's born in Cape Cod. Um, but eventually he moved to San Antonio and was part of a mutual aid group called San Antonio collective care. Uh, but I think he left after having, you know, some of these conflicts within groups like that, his friends, uh, a friend of his who was interviewed by crime think said being raised in a cult, essentially a small society with different cultural norms than ours gave Aaron the ability to see and better identify the norms and qualities of our society that are harder for us to see because we have been conditioned within it. He could see the latent fascist logic and cult-like tendencies that we swim through every day. And that, that little section there hit me pretty hard because I, I think that's, that's really true of people who have been, you know, you're born kind of a, a person with the potential potential to be to be free and live your life and to be somewhat traumatized by systems, you know, makes you obsessed with those systems. Um, yeah. I've t- I've seen this a lot, especially in people with anarchist tendencies, which I have myself. Is that you tend to like a lot of us have dealt with, the, you know, the state run rampant in various ways. I myself went to like a, a supermax school when I was a kid in high school, I had to go to a, a weird prison to, you know, school to prison pipeline school. And I, I think it's part of the reason that it's, I it just never left me being rattled by, uh, seeing the reality of, you know, that system and, and then being a person who just sees it everywhere. And is, is kind of sick. I mean, he, he described himself as like having, you know, his, childhood stolen from him in a lot of ways um yeah i think oh go ahead well i was just gonna ask about his his parents because that's been kind of a an interesting controversial element of the past week or so is is journalists asking his parents for quotes on him the assumption being that that they're the best authority on a, a given person's life is their parents or their, their immediate family. And that, that raises a lot of kind of uh, ethical journalistic questions, I would think, about um, you know, the fact that a lot of people are estranged from, from their immediate family and that they may not uh, represent them at all as people. Yeah. Um, Aaron's closest friends had kind of become his family after he had become estranged from his parents in late 2019, which is when he left the community of Jesus. Um, And shortly before he moved to San Antonio, uh, having joined the air force. Um, And they stated to me that he's estranged from his parents and he has been Um, that the only person that he had occasional contact with was his brother um, and that they had gotten in touch with his brother who had informed his parents what happened. And there was this quote that was going around where, you know, I don't know if this is actually from his mom, but it claims to be attributed to his mom 
saying that he had mental health issues and that she was begging him to seek help within the Air Force and that, you know, uh, we support Israel 100%, which is like a crazy, just like an objectively insane thing to say when talking about your actual son not being alive anymore. Like, to bring that up, it's like for me to be like, by the way, go Steelers. Like, what? (laughs) You know, like, can you, like, it's just baffling to to make that choice. If, you know, I, again, I don't know if this is actually a quote from her or if it's just something that some blue check on Twitter claimed was from her. But regardless, you know, the thing that was difficult about this was it became immediately clear that his parents were not in his life. And that in terms of an authority on who he was and how he was and his community, his actual community of people that he knew that he spent time with, those people are the authority. His loved ones, not his familial relations that he's no longer in contact with, you know? And yeah. I think uh, based on the the comments that, you know, I've seen from his mom, allegedly, it's sort of like, oh, that's why he's estranged. That makes yeah. Sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, there's an extent to which uh, we're going to have to make some guesses here about this stuff. And everyone is because he's not around anymore. But um, I, it, it seems pretty clear to me that he his parents were part of the world that he chose to leave behind. And you could see why, you know, if, if that indeed is something that happened, this kind of reminds me of, um, he, so he's in, you know, he's, he's in the company of a few other people who have chosen to protest in this way. And, uh, there's an interesting parallel there with, this uh this activist named Rachel Corey who in 2003 she was part of a group that went to uh Rafa uh which is in the news again unfortunately but in in 2003 the IDF was cr- like bulldozing villages to you know to create their own settlements or whatever there and so there was this form of protest where you would stand in front of a bulldozer and they chose to run her over and it's a horrifying story. There's fucking video. It's, it's really heavy. Um, what I thought was interesting about her is that, uh, her parents to this day are involved in the cause of Palestinian liberation because of what their, their kid gave their life for, you know? So, uh, (laughs) It, you, it doesn't have to be the way of his damn parents, but um, I don't know. Th- that was also an interesting story, though, because the no one really knows for sure whether she like chose to give her life because it it it's been reported on a lot, and the IDF uh, in Israel immediately sort of figured out a, a tack to take where they relieved the bulldozer operator of um, responsibility by saying, Oh, he couldn't see, you can't see that close in front of you when you're 
driving one of those things, which is like, I think if you read into the story, it's like absurd because people were doing this left and right. And, uh, and you know, all the other bulldozers stopped and, um, just how do you, how do you not notice that sort of thing or whatever? Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. And it kind of like Aaron Bushnell's action exists on its own, but then it also serves to illuminate so many other stressors that are degrading our, you know, human consciousness, our collective understanding of reality, um, all of these different things that are feeding into each other to maintain a comfortable status quo of not really questioning any, any of the, oh, well, you know, they said you couldn't see, so that's it. Don't, don't push further because that's all we're going to give you. Right. Um, and then, you know, there was a lot of efforts to like try and bury like Rachel Corey's name. So we then, her action was not known. The fact that she was killed by Israel was not known. The fact that she was an American who went to Palestine with the express intent of like, she was there and she was like, I have to fight against this because my government is facilitating this back in 2003. And people have been fighting against this, begging to be heard for decades, begging for their actual realities to be believed as true. And even when you have all of that information, all of that, that fact out there, as we've seen since October with, you know, footage of the guy carrying his, his children in plastic bags with footage of children being ripped apart um, from, from bomb blasts, um, you know, just bodies after bodies after bodies of people starving to death of babies on intubators, incubators, um, dying in the hospital. They were just abandoned. Um, because by the IDF, like forced everyone out, left them there, insisted that they would be taken care of and then ignored them. You know, we have so much documented proof that something unbelievably terrible is happening but because it is not in the financial interests of people who have the ability to stop it to to do so it's just not happening they're just sort of like yeah it's you know it's a tough it's uh it's not great really wish uh it's a little bit better so what we're gonna do is you know we're gonna sternly tell them to cool it a little tiny bit Please, please vote for us in November. Right. Um, and the media plays such a role in this. Nothing new to anyone on the left, I'm sure. But um, let's go through it anyway. The New York Times. The New York Times has two headlines going around about this. One of them is Airman dies after setting himself on fire outside Israeli embassy. Uh, and the other one is Aaron Bushnell's winding path ended in self-immolation to protest Israel. Um, these are interesting because neither of them mentions Palestine. And I think one of these may have been edited recently because uh, people pointed out 
their immediate reporting sort of framed things in this, you know, massive passive voice that they use all the time. Airmen just happens to set on fire, that sort of thing. Um, but it conflicts with, uh, I think, I think their defense of it initially was, you know, that, um, you know, it's a, it's a touchy subject. So they wanted to like not, uh, keep from politicizing it or something. But somebody pointed out that they reported on this, journalist from Russia, Irina Slavina, who in 2019 self-immolated in protest of uh, the Russian government. And when they reported on her, they had no problem, you know, really instilling what she was trying to say into the headline because it's Russia. Right. And we, you know, well, that's the, we're yeah. funding a fucking thing against they've them. Or like the bad guy. They've been like the heel to the U S in since like the eighties, the cold war, like everyone like all oh, Russia bad. And it's like, yeah, Russia bad. U S also bad. Right. U S also bad. Israel also bad. Like it's okay to say when bad, you know, there was, um, when Sharina Bua clay was killed by an IDF sniper while visibly marked as press with other members of the press. Um, I think it was in the West bank. Or no, yeah, I was in Janine um, last year. Um, the New York Times initially said that it wasn't clear, like how she had been killed, and the other press who were there with her, who saw her die, um, they were releasing their own footage of what happened. They were saying what happened, and this is members of the press who witnessed this, who documented it. Right. And sharing their own observations, which is what press is supposed to do. And it wasn't until, you know, Israel had originally said, like, oh, it's not clear what happened. There was some, you know, um, rebel fighters in the area. Maybe they shot, like, you know, maybe it was, like, friendly fire. And they shot Shireen. And then more information was coming out that was like, no, there was no one else around. It was an IDF sniper decided to pick her off. Because that is what they do to people. They, it's, just, it's like a game for them. Because this is the society that they're in has kind of indoctrinated them to not view Palestinians as people. To not view them as real. They even say there's no such thing as a Palestinian, which is not true. And, you know, it's, like I said before, like this sort of deference to supposed institutions of authority that have no right they haven't earned that i think people who witness things directly are the ones that have the authority and for them to you know actually report what happens in ukraine and refer to russian attacks as an invasion and then to look at gaza being turned to rubble and say it's just it's a war it's you know all those, you know, some, I think there's a latest estimates was like 20,000, over 20,000 women and children who've been killed so far out of an estimated 30,000 total. And yeah. Oh, but it's a war. What is it a war against babies? Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's so, I don't know. I <clears throat> find myself, you know, being a little bit uh on the left maybe this is like a hot take 
uh, or a hot, uh, controversial way to think about things, but I think about ideas a lot, you know, was we're materialists over here, but I, ideas are often underplayed as being a liberal value an enlightenment value, you know, and I, I find myself more and more obsessed with how powerful this like framing of ideas that operate through journalism are and uh, you know, they wouldn't be doing this stuff if it didn't have an effect, right? It wouldn't be such a consistent, observable thing. And that kind of leads into the last thing I wanted to talk about with regards to all this, which is the discourse a week later and how things are being reduced in various ways, specifically with, I guess, and I bet, Andrews, you'll have something to say about this, the, uh, <laughs> the argument of mental health around all this that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you hear from the right wing after every time there's a mass shooter. Well, they don't want to talk about guns, right? So they bring up mental health. And I think it's interesting because I think mental health is good <laughs> uh, personally, but I just don't believe those like the right wing when they politicize it in that way, because if you check in with them six months later, they're not still talking about mental health. They don't give a shit, right? They don't, they don't like funding institutions for that sort of thing. Um, I, I see a lot of that happening here with people that, you know, feel they need to reduce what happened to mental health. It seems that the advantage seems to be for them that if they make this a mental health issue, it makes you stop thinking about it. And it makes you think that, uh, that, 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 that if you, if you can dismiss what he did with insanity, you can also dismiss Palestinian liberation, like his message with insanity altogether, you know, and that, that uh that clearly is a bad thing i think um i don't know though what do you guys think <laughs> well yeah i i agree ne- mental health is i think a necessary framework but that doesn't mean it's an objective sort of science and and whether or not you know there are cases many cases where a, a certain individual is well this is clearly someone who is mentally ill or mentally unwell but most people are not on that end of the the spectrum and some someone like Aaron Bushnell who's to say whether or not he would have been diagnosed with with something maybe he would maybe he wouldn't have been uh but to me that's kind of beside the point because it's it's not something that um is really at the end of the day that objective again it's necessary but it's it's not it's not a cut and dry thing and i do think that kind of is uh is just kind of a, a side issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you look at you know his upbringing and the the environment that he grew up in, and you see his shift into anarchist ideologies, and you can look at that as you know um, someone rebounding from one extreme to another, as his his comrade Lupe had described it. Um, or, she said you know, she did not think he was mentally ill, though. No, no. His all of his friends have been like he was completely lucid. Like he took the time to make sure that all the bases were covered. Um, and the thing that when I was speaking to his closest friend, um, his best friend actually, um, I I talked to him for like an hour and a half, and after. A while you know i had kind of explained that i had this video and he requested to view it um 
but not have any of the graphic parts. And so I sent him a clip of the beginning and he watched um, and he said to me, um, it's weird to say, but I feel somehow more assured because of how assured he is in this, in this clip. And I think that's the thing that's really freaking out the right is that this guy was so calm and collected and focused. It's not the type of erratic, irrational behavior that you would expect or that they would expect from someone committing an extreme act. You know, for them, they can, they can, it's totally normal to riot against a bunch of cops because you think an election was stolen. Um, but then to calmly engage in an extreme act of harm against yourself is totally out there. And something that one of his friends said at the vigil that they had for, they had a public vigil for him in San Antonio yesterday. And they said, Aaron wasn't crazy. What's crazy is letting your government fund a genocide and doing nothing about it and not caring. Right. This is all kind of reminding me of like the mental health uh, speculation around John Brown being someone in his own time that did something that historically today we look back on and go, well, he was right and everyone else is wrong. Uh, he's been characterized by, you know, his political enemies as having been insane to the advantage of, you know, their agenda of trying to yeah. reduce this in a certain way. And, uh, it, it kind of doesn't matter actually really <laughs> to, to what we're arguing about in a lot of ways, especially something like John Brown, which is abstract and in the past and in history now. But, um, yeah, I think that's a really good point, which is that he, in the, in the, in the the way he chose to go about this was streaming it and there being video, it immediately uh, nullifies like things that are part of the opposite narrative, which is that, um, you know, when we go out and protest, we're, uh, you know, these just like unruly, you know, products of a progressive society and we're like stubborn, like a child throwing a tantrum or whatever. I mean, he did this in a very dignified fashion. Um he also, I, I think that something that that is pretty clear in his decision to wear his fatigues and everything is that he's, oh, I mean, I'm going to argue this is deliberate. I don't know, you know, but uh, there seems to be a takeaway from this, which is that the, the military asks you to risk your corporal being, hmm. you know? just inherently by being a soldier and it asks you to lay down your life. And that is crazy. And we never, it's considered a fact of life. So mm -hmm. this juxtaposes his death with the deaths of soldiers and challenges you to go, why, well, why is this so crazy if we're already demanding all of this fucking death? Cause he said like that in his, his own words, at one point he said to someone, the, the machine demands blood. You know? Um. Yeah. I think when you have a society whose roots are grounded in feeding the beast, sustaining the system, and to 
kind of bend yourself to the needs of that system or that machine, um, whether it's, you know, capitalism or war or fascism or, you know, what have you, um, it warps what you understand to be quote unquote normal and sane as being in compliance with the expectations of that society of what you're allowed to be and what you're allowed to do. And, you know, we see this with Christofascism is it, it being queer is weird and, and you're, you're just, it's just like a mental illness. Um, and I think that when a majority of what we're exposed to insists that normal is compliance with whatever feeds the beast that when you encounter anyone that has any type of moral clarity, they're inherently going to act beyond the bounds of acceptability in that space, regardless of whether that is self-immolation, protest, or just not being a shithead to other people. Yeah, all of that eventually will gets defined as mental illness, because mental illness is like a is a, a malleable concept that defines itself, you know, based on, uh, you know, productivity and things like that. And it, it isn't, I mean, this kind of made me think about this interview we did with the authors of this book called health communism, but it's, um, it's a concept that we take as a given and as like a scientific observable fact in ways that I think it, uh, you know, read your history. It's kind of an invented like idea, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anders, you got any thoughts on this? <laughs> I feel like this is your, your lane. Well, I think like you just said, it's, uh, it's, it's malleable. It's not, um, I think, yeah, I broken record, but I think we get too caught up in diagnoses, uh, and the terminology associated with them as like static, you know, it's stuck once you are labeled with something that defines you for the rest of your life when, when the brain is a malleable thing, um, and the experience changes people. Um, and yeah, I, I think it, it, uh, it's, um, I think it's, you know, I think it's sad when anyone dies or is suicidal, but you can also, there are people who commit suicide who aren't mentally ill. It's not always, uh, that cut and dry, right? Like I said earlier. Um, but uh, I guess something we should address on this note is, is you know, what, one of the alarms that was immediately sounded by a lot of um, conservatives and liberals, and it's probably some leftists, is that there's going to be copycat uh, suicides. I don't think we've seen any so far. Um, is, is that something you think about, Talia? And, and we should also address, too, there have been other uh, suicides, um, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, other self-immolations or attempts at self-immolation since this, uh, conflict began mm. that haven't got as much, uh, coverage. Yeah. There was one self-immolation attempt in Atlanta, Georgia in December of last year, 2023. Yeah. We mentioned um, that earlier. But in terms of copycats, um, self-immolation is extremely excruciating it is something that people are not, you know, valorizing, 
even though conservatives and people who are already predisposed to oppose any sort of protesting for Palestine, um, you know, they're, they're insisting that people are cheering it on and celebrating suicide, but that's not happening. People are mourning the loss of someone who, have, who, who could have continued to contribute to the cause, who could have continued to help the people around him and to help build a better world for the future. This is a widespread community in pain who are honoring the choice that he made because it was such a final choice. This isn't that they're honoring it because it was so cool or, oh, wow, I want to be like Aaron Bushnell. It's like, there's not, we're not going to see copycats, right? That's not something that happens with self-immolation. Self-immolation is an extreme extreme act of protest and we see self-immolation in instances where there is an extreme amount of desperation to be heard what we should be understanding from Aaron Bushnell's actions is not that we're going to see more people self-immolate it's that the situation has become so desperate through media you know, downplaying, skirting, minimizing the bias that's coming into play that erases the realities at hand through the political system, the political machine, ignoring massive suffering for their own, you know, political, financial uh, benefit. These things are creating an, an extreme amount of pressure that is having a widespread psychic impact on people. If you don't want to see more self-immolations, what you need to do is acknowledge the extreme desperation that people are in to have the reality and the, the widespread harm that you are facilitating, like to, to hear that and to help stop that harm by any means necessary. This isn't difficult. This is, this is massive death, man- manufactured starvation for the purpose of real estate and, you know, I don't know, all these other different industries that are looking to profit off of taking over Gaza and eliminating the Palestinian people. Yeah, I kind of, I think that um, the term copycat is a clever media tool because I don't think that you're going to see a string of other self-immolations, but the world is very large and, uh, you know, they call, they... They've claimed that various other self-immolations throughout history were copycats of um, the monk in Vietnam, whose name is I'm going to butcher. Why am I even trying to say it? Uh, I'm not going to say it. Um, (laughs) But if someone else does come along and engage in a similar act of of extreme protest, they might that might just happen because there's still a genocide happening in Gaza, right? But when you frame it in a headline as a copycat, you extinguish the intention. It's, so suddenly right. you're, you're saying, oh, this wasn't about Gaza. This person just did that because of Aaron Bushnell. Right. We're not going to see that. If there and, are going and it helps to because it also antagonizes Aaron Bushnell <laughs> for yeah. supposedly starting a thing that you just like made blaming up. him when there was another one that happened, you know, three months ago and that Aaron didn't bring that person up. He didn't say I was inspired to do this by X, Y, Z. 
you know, a, a specific incident, he said that he was doing this to no longer be complicit in genocide. And like, that's that you're exactly right. That if we are going to see other instances of people ending their lives in very extreme ways in an effort to force this to a stop, it is going to be because of the thing that is happening to the Palestinian people that is just so massively atrocious that people are like, I would rather die fighting every and in, in, in any way I can than to continue allowing this to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it kind of works on the same logic uh, of reducing all protest in general outside of extreme forms like this as being like tr- trendy. And it, you know, it implies that we're all just doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. Like the whole, know. like, Oh, well, they only care about Palestine because they're just, you know, on TikTok, And it's like, are you sure? Are you <laughs> yeah. sure it's not because what you're doing is awful? You could just you can reduce anything that way. Um, I, I also uh, I saw something online today, which is a sort of random wheat pasted thing in a subway station that relates to this. I thought it was kind of interesting. It says the purpose of lightning, the purpose of lighting yourself on fire is not to encourage other people to light themselves on fire. It is to scream to the world that you could find no alternative, and in that respect. It is a, or in, and in that respect, it is a challenge to the rest of us to prove with our own freedom that there are other ways to meaningfully resist a society whose cruelty has become intolerable. That's pretty well put. You um, saw this on a wheat paste in a subway station? Yeah, somebody just posted a picture of it on Instagram or something. Pretty good, wow. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a whole dissertation right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, uh, I think. Before we get out of here, I, I kind of wanted to end by reading another passage. Does anybody have, anybody have anything they want to get to before we I d- round? I out? do want to ask one one thing, which I, I saw something about. I don't know what the veracity of this is, but at the New York Post, uh, you know, not, not what we consider the paper of record uh, here at this podcast, certainly. But uh, there was a report in there that Bushnell may have said he had he had access to uh, classified information um you know regarding american troops in gaza Uh, do you have any insight into to the that and if it's true or not yeah i don't want to like shock you guys too much but it's bullshit okay (laughs) um it was widely reported in the beginning of november 2023 that u.s troops were preparing to deploy to the area to the region to assist the idf Um, it's been reported that military are being put on like a mandatory potential deployment to assist the IDF. Um, it's known that we have us troops, you know, operating helicopters and, you know, providing weapons and that there is an active presence of United States, uh, military in Israel and around Palestine assisting. So, that on its own is is goofy. <laughs> Secondly, his job was in IT and he had to have a higher clearance to do that job. Um, he did back-end IT, right? Yeah. Which means that he's like fixing things and potentially being exposed to classified information. Does that mean that he's actually like sorting through those things and reading stuff and leaking it to people and whistleblowing? No. It's his job was in software 
and, 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 you know, computer engineering. Um, and this, you know, supposed pal is like, who, who is this? We don't know. They're conveniently anonymous. And this is also coming from the paper that published, you know, these claims of like a migrant hoax of, uh, claiming that there were veterans being pushed out of a hotel upstate in New York, um, to make room for migrants. And it was completely made up. Mm. And, you know, the post says that they, they verified this information. They verified that this person knew him, but I would love to see any information about that. I would love to see any, any of how they verified it, you know, what they're like, who this person is. You know, I would love to see if this is a person who actually knew him or if this is someone who, you know, also worked on the the base in San Antonio. Yeah. You know, and like, like that's as, as close as they got. Um, because I passed this along to people who, who knew him best and they were like, no, that's nonsense. He also yeah. wasn't working his Air Force job at the base for like four months. He was in a skill bridge in Ohio, which is a jobs training program for active duty military to transition into civilian roles for the work that they were doing in the military. So he wasn't even, you know, accessing any of this classified information on any of these computers that he was fixing because some commander guy tried to download porn again, you know? Um, he He was learning job skills for his future out of the military. Yeah. I I mean, there are other like kind of conspiracy theories around him that popped up in the last week that are, I think clearly debunkable and just obviously not part of the real story. One of them that was that he was extremely anti-Semitic. Well, guess what? The post. Yeah. I debunked that. (laughs) That was you. Good job. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There was a claim that he had made a comment on Reddit about how, you know, everything will be better when all the Jews are dead or something like that. And before his account was taken down, I was able to search through um, an automatic archive of all the comments. And originally, when I was looking at his, or the profile, I don't even know if it's his, but when I was originally looking at the profile, I was able to go to the comments that said deleted on the profile, and then going to them on the page, it would say, you know, deleted by user or whatever the terminology is. And then after the account was nuked, I still had that tab up and I went over and looked at, I tried to click on something and it showed deleted by mod because his account was taken down Yeah. or the account. I don't know if it was his and I term searched the word Jews and I term searched Jewish and um, anti-Semitic, you know, I, I searched for these things. And what I found was someone who had a very, keen understanding of the paradigm between that, that, that makes clear that Zionism is not Judaism. He was anti anti Zionist and opposed anti-Semitism. actually called out um, some like anarchist writers who were very anti-Semitic themselves and mm-hmm. criticized that um, criticized JK Rowling for using, you know, anti-Semitic tropes for characters um, and made sure to distinguish between someone saying like, Oh, they, they did that to make these characters look like Jews. And he says, no, it wasn't about them looking like Jews. It was about 
anti-Semitic tropes that are used to stereotype Jews. And that's like a very nuanced analysis that makes clear that like this guy was not down with anti-Semitism and it is so convenient to try and claim, Oh, he was anti-Semitic the same way that they claim, Oh, he was mentally unwell. Oh, he just got caught up in propaganda. Oh, it's because he came from a cult and then joined another one. Oh, it's, you know, all these different things like shut up. Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, completely off the wall, vaguely related tangent here. Uh, speaking of JK Rowling, something I read about this week is that, um, Alan Rickman, who played Professor Snape, who's a little anti-Semitically coded, you might argue. Uh, <laughs> he uh, wrote a play about Rachel Corey and based it on her oh, journals what? and diaries and stuff. And it couldn't get it put on Broadway because of oh, fucking censorship of stuff like this. So he performed it off Broadway. Isn't that cool? He was cool. That's so frustrating to find out that someone was that goaded like after they're gone and you can't like properly be like, damn, that that's that like that's awesome. I want to find that. You should put it on. Like, let's organize something so you can do that here or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It's such a bummer. I had the same thought. I was like, man, I didn't know he was cool. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyways, um, I want to kind of round down here by reading some of his own words that I think. Uh, deserve to be echoed and you know the least I could do here with our little microphone is to to put some of his stuff out there so this he's quoted again by this article in crime thing I read that I I used to enjoy it a lot because they interviewed his friends and stuff Um, it goes like this I am an anarchist which means I believe in the abolition of all hierarchical power structures especially capitalism and the state I view the work we do as fighting back in the class war, which the capitalist class wages on the rest of humanity. This also informs the way in which I want to organize, as I believe that any hierarchical power structure is bound to reproduce class dynamics and oppression. Thus, I want to engage in egalitarian forms of organizing that produce horizontal power structures based on mutual aid and solidarity, which are capable of liberating humans. I favor consensus-based decision-making over, quote, democratic or voting-based governance. uh, I've always been bothered by the reality of homelessness, even back when I was growing up in a conservative community. I have come to believe in the importance of solidarity politics, and I view the enforcement of homelessness as a major front in the class war, which must be challenged for all our sakes. I view helping my houseless neighbors as a moral obligation, a matter of social justice, and a matter of good politics. If I don't stand with those more marginalized than me today, then who will be left to stand with me tomorrow? I view enforced homelessness as a societal failing and a, and a crime against humanity. I believe that no one deserves to be deprived of basic human necessities. I believe that homelessness as an involuntary condition must be abolished. I thought that was really well put and I thought it was um, perfectly relevant to, uh, you know, the genocide because that is a big aspect of it is destroying the ability for Palestinians to live on the land in Gaza. 
Um, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know. I could, I could go on. There's so much to talk about here, but, uh, I think we should probably, uh, wind down Talia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your work. Thank you for sharing the story and for debunking the conspiracies around it and that sort of thing. Uh, I really appreciate what independent journalists like yourself do. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Uh, where could our listeners find you and follow your stuff? I'm on Twitter at Talia OTG. Um, that's most of where I, I do my reporting, posting stuff. Um, I'm on Instagram. It's MX Talia Jane. And I guess if you have any other places where you're trying to find me, you can just ask me. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really appreciate that, you know, you, we got a chance to, to talk about this. Yeah. And I yeah. thank you for that. Thanks yeah, for coming for sure. on. All right. That was our interview with Talia Jane. <clears throat> uh, let's do some plugs and get out of here. Um, you can listen to my other podcast, Why You Mad. It's about comedy and philosophy and art and things like that. I do it with my friend Luis Diaz, who's a really smart anthropologist and comedy booker. Um, my other other show is just about King of the Hill. It's called That's My Podcast. I don't know you. It's real stupid. Listen to it if you like King of the Hill and you want to think about King of the Hill. Um, I'm doing a show on the 10th of March here in Los Angeles. It's a fundraiser for my friend Jeremy, who we had on the show recently, who is... Uh, facing down a lawsuit for being an anti-fascist medic and i'm looking up the poster right now for it to try to tell you where it's at bam i found it it's called the solidarity fundraiser raising funds for activists legal fees there's uh, me doing jokes there's art there's music there's burlesque and crazy shit like that it's at first street pool and billiard which is at 1906 first street in los angeles california uh, march 10th 7 p.m to 1 a.m come on out that's it. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm at Andersley here on Twitter, Dursley1 on Instagram. Please donate to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. I believe that's one of the asks that uh, Aaron Bushnell made um, before his death. And if you are in a Super Tuesday state, that that, that is going to be this coming Tuesday, March 5th, please vote uncommitted. Um, there are Several states that have the uncommitted option. Some of them are Super Tuesday. We have Colorado, especially Minnesota. Uh, I believe North Carolina, uh, American Samoa. There's a lot of places you can do it. Um, and then there's there's write-in options as well. But please just you know take the time if you're able to. And uh, in some cases, you have to be registered Democrat. Others, you don't. Open primaries. Minnesota is one of those cases. Um, just, yeah, take the, take the time to send Biden the message that, uh, we don't, we don't support and sign off on, on the genocide. Cool. Uh, all right. That's it. It's finished. It's finished with my voice all gross.